Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We have come to a deal, pretty much, subject to getting it written. It'll take probably three weeks, four weeks, yeah. or five weeks. That's five weeks ago, Friday. We still don't have a deal on paper. Substantially. I don't know what that means. I don't know what the mathematics of that is. But, uh, you know, finally, it's a pause. I mean, I looked at the chart, log chart, SPX. It's basically a moonshot from the first week of October. And today's sort of a pause. We have stalled. Lisa Bravitz with us as well in here in New York City. And Lisa, I just wonder whether we're starting to test the patience of some people out there. It's close. It's close. But it's still not here. Well, if you look at, though, at credit, it's very much risk on. And so if you look at credit as a leading indicator, then perhaps people might be losing patience with the it's on, it's off, it's on, it's off. But risk on is still sort of the, the sort of yeah. bias underneath the market right now. You know, the, the people next door, vet bills barking all the time. They got a cat named Beta. And, you know, Beta is just out of control, like ripping <laughs> up the couch. Beta's all the rage right now. How did I they mean, get did Beta versus vet I don't know. The, the guy used to run a hedge fund. He went out, he blew up. Uh, but, but, you know, I, I look at the hedge fund story that Bloomberg has out today about somebody's modeling up 25%. And as you mentioned with Lisa Shallot, brilliant yesterday, and Morgan Stanley. She's fantastic. Pi- it's Pile on the beta. That's the call. Lisa Shadow to Morgan Stanley. Should we Stanley explain what beta is? The relationship to the broader market, the higher the beta, <laughs> the, higher, the higher returns fair, you get. Fair on the Greek the letters. <laughs> should we move on? Should we get Michael Sharp into this conversation? Marketfield Asset Management Chairman. Michael, great to see you. Nice to be here. Let's talk about that. Lisa Shadow to Morgan Stanley saying, I want a high beta trade related to that trade story, related to global growth, bottom and gout, and I want it out of Europe, out of international markets. Does that resonate with you? Uh, you know, yes. Uh, you know, I said to you last time, I, last time we spoke, but I, I thought that Brexit also matters a great deal. But I, I think we're heading towards a period in which our geopolitical conflicts are, are, you know, are put on hold. And I think the deep pessimism of the summer um, you know, is being reversed back to a, you know, a more normal, reasonable view of the world. We've had a huge sentiment shift in the last couple of months. The debate that I keep hearing again and again over the last couple of weeks, just how much oxygen is left in this big rotation into cyclical trades. How much oxygen is left? What's your time horizon for this to play out, Michael? Uh, months, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's been uh, at least 18 months in which... Um, <clears throat> You know, you've had this sort of anti-cyclical trade in place, and 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 for certain things like emerging markets, they've chronically mm-hmm. underperformed for, you know, eight years and you know eight years and counting. So, I, you know, I, I think this is the start of a, a pretty important change. I think a lot of what you saw September October was simply short covering, and only mm-hmm. now are you starting to see people start to engage their long books. Uh, Dr. Scholl, you of course with your claim at Oscar Gruss over the years that there's an international view here. The great debate John Fur and I are hearing is the idea of stay in U.S. or buy international. Where are you on that? And if it is international, what flavor? You know, I, I think global developed, um, you know, again, people were sort of chronically pessimistic about that. I, I, I think Japan quietly is having a reasonable cycle. Uh, I think Japan is having something of a domestic revolution. Uh, you know, it's, it's unlocked its female population and has a participation rate of more than 50%, which doesn't sound like much, but it's a lot for Japan. <clears throat> so, you know, I think Japan has been consistently underestimated and, and that's a good starting point. I'm, I'm okay with Europe. Um, and as far as EM is concerned, you know, I'm of the view that the Chinese economy has slowed mostly because of domestic reasons. Yeah. Um, and it is within their power to, to re-accelerate it if they feel like it. 
Should we should we unlock Lisa? I, 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 I knew. I knew. You're, you're, as soon as I saw your face, unlock her female conversation. I'm hearing so clear of this conversation. You two have got the next ten minutes. She's unlocking. Go ahead. Oh, I just I just knew it. I saw the twinkle in your eye, and I said, "Oh, this is going straight south." Well, I do have to wonder though, when you talk about the developed world, how much has the trade skirmish held back? asset appreciation versus the sort of new normal that people talk about, the Japanification, if you will, uh, pre the, the female uh, population the becoming un- unlocked. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, you know, how, how real is that? In the Look, I, mean, I think world? there is certainly truth to the central idea that, that Europe has, is sort of sclerotic and doesn't grow in the same way as the United States. And I think its equity indexes have suffered because they don't have a lot of technology in it. So, you know, all of those things are, are true. But it's also true that, that by the end of August, people were ridiculously pessimistic about where the global economy was going, including and especially Europe. Well, let's talk about that. How do you want to allocate to that story? Because if you do it at the index level in Europe right now, just looking at the stock 600, the highest weighting on the stock 600, healthcare, at almost 15% of the index. Do I want to allocate capital to Europe at the index level, the broader index level? You know, I think it's better to allocate it at the index level than, than, than not to allocate it at all. I think the first money that goes back in when you have a rotation like this does happen at the index level. So I'm not against the index level, but, but I think for those able to do you know, more work, I, I think the more cyclical portions of, of, of Europe are interesting. Well, let's talk about that. Does that include European banks? European banks are essentially a play on interest rates. They've become entirely captured by, by, by macro flows. And, and, you know, I think people spend a great deal of time talking about the state of the banking system. It's, it's really your view on, on rates. If you think European rates are going up, you could short the books all or you could go long European banks. I don't think there'd be a great deal of difference. What about German automakers? Um, again, I think people got too pessimistic. I think the, the so you're buying German automakers. I am not buying German automakers, but I, because I have lots of other cyclicality in my portfolio, but I, I probably wish I did a few weeks ago. The great parsing, and this goes back to your work over the years, Michael, on commodities and the ability to make money in commodity or to not lose money in commodities. What do you do within a global com- commodity? disinflation and outright deflation? How do you reposition there? Well, I think it's all supply driven. Really, the commodity mm-hmm. story is a combination of supply driven and financial flows being being very negative over over recent over recent years. You know, we haven't yet seen sort of key inflection points in something like copper. You know, I think that is sort of a one negative macro trade, which has stubbornly, stubbornly right. stayed in place. I think, to me, the biggest questions within commodities is, is, is gold simply a safe haven, in which case it's not interesting? Or is gold, in fact, just sensitive to, to the growth of global liquidity, in which case, well, uh, which I think it is, in which case gold still is interesting in the mid-1400s? Right. One final question. What do you do is the gold bulls are in here at 1500 saying go long gold, and that was an outlier call until it wasn't. Is it still a long gold call by you? I think so. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I do think you have a bit of a safe haven shakeout. I do think yields go higher and gold goes lower for a period of time. But I, I think ultimately, you know, we are in a time of excess liquidity, and that's good for gold. Very good, Michael Schultz. Thank you so much, good Michael Field Asset Management. Always interesting, fabulous work on the Chinese financial system. We'll do that with him uh, here uh, soon as well.
Alicia Levine with us on the watch in London right now with BNY Mellon. She's not going to Claridge's. She's looking at investment strategy for BNY Mellon clients uh, in London as well. Alicia, tell us the spirit of London right now. You and I are foreign, foreign, foreign. What is the election spirit you glean? So people here are, are pensive and they're tired and they want it yeah. to be done. That's what and John Farrell says exactly. Yeah, they're 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 distraught. They're tired of the conversation, and at this point, it feels as if they'd accept any outcome just to be done with the conversation. It's been three and a quarter years yeah. with you know with with endless debate, with endless headlines, and and so that's the feeling here. Lucky for the people of the UK. Their election cycle is much, much shorter than ours is. And so thank goodness for them. Their election is in four weeks. And for for us, we've got another, you know, 11 months of this, which, you know, if we all survive, it would be great. Do you go long United Kingdom multinationals off of all this gloom and pensiveness? So that's a great question. And the short, clean answer is more yes than no. So the answer is yes. If you look at asset flow data since June of 2016, since Brexit, there's been a massive outflow from UK equities, massive outflow. When you see that kind of one-sided trade, it is typically very profitable to take the other side of that trade. I think any resolution of the uncertainty will lead to further investment here and ultimately growth. You may have a couple of quarters where it's a little flat. Both parties here, both Labor and the Tories, seem to want to spend a lot of money in a fiscal boost. So I think that that really the UK equities look very interesting here. And I think it's time to build a position. Well, Alicia, let's talk about it a little bit more. Let's add some weight to this conversation. How important is the sterling dimension to this conversation? And what's your basic foreign exchange assumption? So the the thing about sterling is that the entire Brexit will be expressed through sterling. So in the very small event of a hard Brexit, I mean, it has not been fully taken off the table, but mostly off the table. You're probably going to see about a dollar ten to a dollar fifteen on that. A, a, a negotiated and more integrated Brexit gets you closer to a dollar forty. And so right now, what you have priced into sterling is Brexit, a negotiated Brexit, and that's what's priced in. So if if you are betting on either way, that's what you're getting a ten percent on either side. So you would be exposed to foreign exchange going into this move. This wouldn't be hedged into UK equities coming out of the United States. I just want a better idea of this for our listeners that might be based here in America, thinking about allocating some capital to that story, Alicia. So I think that, so in terms of multinationals, I think the the direction of sterling is higher. So to that, you probably want to hedge a little bit, but direction of sterling is higher, certainly. But I just think I think that the it's been such a terrible conversation for investment and for corporates here that it, it has to turn. It has to turn. The certainty is going to move it. How long do you think this trade uh, could go on? How much conviction uh, is there behind this trade? So right now you have, aside from today, today's one of those risk-off days, and so it's just yeah. going to feel ugly, and it's going to be ugly, yeah. and we're going to all yeah. want to go home early, but yeah. um, or you know, normal time here in the UK, but. The thing is that what's happening now is you have a reversion to the mean in terms of valuations. So you have global 10-year yields off their lows almost across across the globe, even as central banks are cutting, right? Which essentially tells you the central bank impulse to cut 
has more or less been successful because you've re-steepened curves everywhere, particularly here in the U.S. Right. And, and the dollar has broken through the 200-day moving average on the downside, suggesting there's some movement down, and that's, that's very positive for global assets. And there's some evidence of bottoming. The question is, are you just going to get a reversion to the mean in terms of valuations? In which case, you do want to buy EM, you do want to buy Europe, because they're woefully undervalued compared to U.S. valuations. Or is this really the next leg of the bull market, the next leg of cyclical global growth? It feels like it's the latter, but you really have to see the fundamental data come through. Either way, the trade is there. Either way, it's there. Alicia, thank you so much. Safe travels. Alicia Levine, BNY Mellon. We're thrilled that she comes to us from her studios in London. John and I really have talked about, you know, our in-depth coverage of the impeachment hearings, and we wanted to wander by with that. So we dragged in off the street out of Washington, Terrence Haynes. He's with Pangea, of course, policy, and he writes blistering, blistering, detailed pieces on policy. Did you escape Washington to join us in our interactive broker studios just to get away from the impeachment derby? I decided to go somewhere where it was colder. Actually, that was the deal. That was good. That'll be good. I love what you say about China tariffs that we've heard all about this. You've got that key operative word, which you're famous for, which is somebody has to enforce this. Uh, Well, Where's the enforceability of whatever, what's it called, phase one? Phase one. Phase one, phase five. Where's enforceability? I don't see it in any discussion. I don't see it in any discussion either, which uh, leads me to the conclusion that it's that, that it's real and it's serious. Uh, this is law school; they call this a negative evidence problem. And you know what the United States has wanted all along, fundamentally, is enforceability. They 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 assess that for the last decade or so, the big problem with U.S.-China negotiations has been nothing's enforceable, and therefore China can be let off the hook, et cetera, et cetera, from their point of view. So what, ends, what needs to happen fundamentally is enforceability. And so what I've said is I think you get an inflection point here in the next couple of weeks where either you see an enforceable deal of some sort being done, which ought to show markets that there is a positive traje- trajectory here uh, that will continue up, if the Chinese agree to this, and it is the Chinese that have to agree to this. Uh, but without it, uh, what you're going to get is uh, is sort of this cold peace tr- uh, trade war stalemate uh, that's going to continue on for quite a while uh, with no, no significant tariff diminution, none of that. So to be clear here, Terry, you think the biggest sticking point to a phase one agreement at this point is not the request to roll back tariffs, but the lack of enforceability? Absolutely. Uh, enforceability from the United States perspective is the linchpin uh, to doing an entire deal. Without enforceability uh, from the United States perspective, there's no point in doing a deal. Uh, to me, the tariff rollback is a bit of a, uh, a bit ephemeral. And uh, what will end up happening is that t- tariffs will, g- if there is a good deal from the U.S. perspective, therefore an enforceable deal, there will be some rollback of tariffs, but tariffs aren't going to go away exactly. Uh, what the president has said all along, and he's been consistent in this. Now, they have a terrible uh, 
messaging arm in the White House, and that gets taken as having no message at all, and that's that's not the case. You just have to look for it. What they've said all along is that uh, they, they put tariffs on in order to force people to the table. Once they get a deal that they think they like, the tariffs come back off. Uh, so what you'll get in a phase one deal is, is some stopping of future tariffs and maybe a rollback of uh, some existing tariffs, but they're not going to come off completely. Terry, I want to give you the Wall Street narrative, and then you can give me the Washington, D.C. critique of that narrative. The Wall Street story, the story that we get told day after day after day, is the president needs a deal going into 2020. He'll ultimately give the Chinese what they want. We get some ag purchases. We move on. We put a flaw in the U.S. economy. What do you make of that 2020 argument? I've never thought that was accurate, and I still don't think that is accurate. What is it about what you see that you think that is inaccurate? Uh, what I see is that is consistency in the American government's negotiating position. Uh, if they wanted a deal like that, they could have had it quite a while ago. If they wanted a deal like that, they'd already be signaling that the, the that they're ready to to zag in the in a different direction uh, they haven't done that so far after a year and a half of this i very much doubt they will so the bottom line for me is uh, they are focused on making real improvements in the u.s chinese relationship uh, through enforceability one of their uh, one of their touchstones all along has been that China needs to join the community of nations, live up to agreements, et cetera, and that's what they're pushing for. I think right now markets are kind of taking headlines and responding to them less and less because they've seen this movie before. Fool me once, uh, shame on you. Uh, fool me twice, shame on me. What are you looking for in terms of headlines that actually would matter? Nothing. Uh, I think the headlines, by and large, are, 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 are based on uh, wishful thinking of the moment, positive or negative. And, and one thing, uh, one thing that I've, I've long thought and continue to think is that both of these countries, right. U.S. and China together, uh, have try to manage the news cycle to make sure there's not uh, yeah. uh, too high highs or too low lows. There's an agricultural lobby. It's your fault, Terry Haynes, that the milk industry is flat on its back. We saw that with the Dean Foods bankruptcy yesterday and real challenges for dairy farmers coast to coast. Uh, Pat Roberts of Kansas, Mr. Moran of Kansas as well, two senators that are buffeted by the lobbies. How powerful are the agricultural lobbies to sell to the president they're flat on their back? Uh, I think they're they're powerful enough to sell to the president that they're flat on their back. I think that gets taken into account by the White House. At this juncture, do I think that the White House makes a serious move in a different direction on negotiations? I don't. They want. It's very clear that they want agricultural sales as part of a deal, uh, and I think they get that. Uh, but whether or not that deal is anything more than a, a blip in a, in a lar larger Chinese-U.S. confrontation, uh, we just don't know yet. So then what do the Democrats do moving forward on trade? Let's assume we get... Uh, John, are we getting a phase one year in the no? Are we getting a phase one deal? You want me to give you a definitive answer Please, on that? Please, I want that right now. The president said in writing, perhaps in five weeks, it's five weeks Friday. Let's talk about it Friday. You see, that's the third time he's brought that up today. He's got October 11th <laughs> tattooed to his brain. What's phase two look like, a wise one? Uh, phase two looks like uh, the, the, the rest of the story. Phase two looks like uh, dealing with... Uh, with intellectual property restrictions. Oh, come on. It's like Uruguay. It's like Gap Talks. It's out five years, right? Well, yeah, it'll be a while. It'll be a while. It won't be quick, certainly. Uh, but 
I think the White House's hope is that if they can get China to agree on enforceability, then what they can do is begin to move forward on those those more difficult yeah. questions, knowing that the Chinese are actually intend to live up to them. Good, Terry Haynes with us. Terry, thank great you. to see you. Thank you so Likewise, much, the Pangea. What is, I, I just thought I just assumed I saw the list that you were in Washington. This is wonderful. It's great to have Terry with us. Terry Haynes of Pangea Policy Advisory. Looking at the latest in Hong Kong this morning as well, Tom, the government announcing for the first time that it would close public schools. We've had officials from Hong Kong and Chinese state media warning of consequences if violence continued. What are those consequences? From Hong Kong, Karen Lee joins us now, Bloomberg Greater China editor. Great to have you with us, Karen. So let's talk about it. What are the potential consequences if violence does indeed continue? Well, you know, this is a question that everybody is asking, and I think we've talked about this before over the course of the last five months, but every couple of months there's a new question that really hovers over these protests. And at the moment, it's what could the consequences be, and would China get more directly involved in trying to calm these protests if the violence continues? And earlier in the summer, we had the same question. Was China going to get more directly involved? They didn't. They issued some strong warnings of caution, um, and they're doing that again today, but we haven't seen any direct note from China that it would get involved so far. It's stuck to these kind of cautious, um, these kind of cautious overtures in state media. Mm-hmm. It continues to support Carrie Lam and her government here. It continues to stand by the police to say that they think that they can handle it. So at this point, we don't have anything concrete to go on. But the city is on edge. There have been a few days of pretty intense violence, um, some very jarring images that we've seen coming out. Um, so people are a bit more on edge than they usually are. Karen, uh, the images of the university, the Chinese University of Hong Kong, folks, this is one of the great success stories of late 20th century academics. Founded in 1963, they've got a huge program they do with Yale University in the United States, and they are definitive in physics. I mean, this is the real deal university, and it is shut down for the end of the semester. What is the reaction of the people of Hong Kong when they see one of their prestigious universities shut down? Well, you know, Tom, it was almost a bit of a domino effect with the schools today, um, where you had these really intense clashes yesterday at CUHK, and it almost looked like a battle zone. You had protesters and students battling with police, and they were throwing petrol bombs, and the police were throwing tear gas. And then today we woke up to more distractions. And, you know, I think with the with schools closed and, and the entire school system, the public school system suspended tomorrow, I think people are looking at academia now and at schools and at campuses and CUHK at the front of that really is possibly like the new ground zero of this protest and where it goes. And all along, the protests have been led by students. They've been really youth-driven, um, especially these kind of later months where they've gotten more and more intense. So mm-hmm. I think in a way, some people might have been waiting for it to come to this for a bit, for these, for these universities to become these hotbeds of activism and really be in the spotlight the way that they have been. But at the same time, the protests that we saw yesterday and the the imagery coming out was jarring to see that coming from 
one of the premier academic institutions in Hong Kong. It's not just academia, it's also the financial sector, and we have banks uh, issuing warnings to their staff to stay home, stay safe. Uh, There was a Citigroup banker, uh, ostensibly, uh, who was arrested amid some of the protests, and uh, all staff should exercise due care while commuting, uh, remain vigilant of their surroundings, and check travel plans before leaving the offices, according to Deutsche Bank. Meanwhile, uh, Ferragamo's sales in Hong Kong fell 45% during the third quarter. This is what they said in response to some of the turmoil. How big of a hit has this been economically? Yeah, well, retail and travel in particular have taken a hit in recent months. And now you're starting to see some of these famed big banks that have been in Hong Kong for a long time start to grapple with what's in the last couple of days, literally stepped from their doors. We saw tear gas being fired in the city center. and We saw people at lunchtime, businessmen, um, bystanders, protesters, all fleeing from tear gas really close to the Bloomberg office in an area of town that's usually kept free from this kind of thing, especially in the middle of the day. Um, and so these uh-huh. banks that have been, you know, giving people a bit of a flexible work hour situation, they're, they're starting to hint at a bit more caution. And I think people now having a harder time um, keeping that distance from it when it comes so close to you physically and when it's suddenly right outside the door and you have to worry about staff safety. I think that that gives it a whole new dimension beyond right. wins and losses. Karen Lee, thank you so much. Reporting from Thanks, Hong Karen. Kong this morning. Let's get some thoughts on what we're seeing from Fed Chairman Powell here and what we may hear from him uh, at 11 a.m. Eastern. We welcome Chris Rupke, Managing Director, Chief Financial Economist at MUFG Union Bank. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. What do you expect to hear from Chairman Powell as he testifies today at 11 a.m. Eastern? Well, luckily for us, he uh, spilled the beans already and put out the uh, his statement. Uh, I was a little surprised. It, it sounded to me as if in the press conference just two weeks ago that uh, he had said the risks, one of the reasons that they were pausing in the rate cuts was that the risks from Brexit and uh, the China trade talks had diminished. But now, I mean, the the headlines make it sound as if, um, you know, the risk is still out there in terms of what could happen with the trade. So that was... uh, yeah. Interesting to me. And on page three, to get to the point of the elevated, uh, I'm looking for that headline again, elevated in some asset uh, classes, Chris Rupke, uh, he moves forward to the end of this week where the Fed will be, quote, releasing our third financial stability report. I mean, if it's like the Green Book at the IMF, <coughs> what I'm hearing is things are okay. Which asset classes are elevated? I don't know. I, I guess. I agree. Uh, I don't know. Cut. Uh, collateralized uh, loan obligations, I guess, uh, are having some problems. Maybe some of the high-yield market. Uh, so you don't think he's talking about the stock issues. market? I don't think I don't think he means the stock market. Well, I mean, look, the the Dow is up 18.4 percent. Uh, I, I hope they're not pointing to the stock market as uh, an asset class right. that is elevated. I, I, I think. Oh, go ahead, Chris, please. Yeah, I don't I don't think it's a broader stock yeah. market this time. I was in the triple leverage all cash fund. Rupke was in the triple Apple fund. Absolutely, that's exactly triple leverage, right. Triple leveraged Apple fund. I think I like his returns I'm a little bit better top, than yours. I'm in the top tier of it, though. 
so Chris, I mean, the market seems to be discounting, again, kind of uh, one rate cut coming out of this Federal Reserve over the next six to 12 months. Do you think that's reasonable? Well, I mean, give it, I, it really comes down to what's happening with trade. Uh, I mean, listening to uh, the president at the Economic Club of New York yesterday, it, it sounded like he's still taking a hard line. Maybe that's his negotiating stance, as we know. But it sounds like he's taking a hard line, and he wants to see some material changes uh, with China and the way they do business, kind of China Inc. So... That didn't sound very good to me because I don't think we're going to get a lot of movement there uh, for, on their part for that. So we'll see. I mean, this phase one agreement could still kind of uh, turn out to be less than what the market is hoping and expecting for. What is your GDP view 12 months forward? I mean, you're having a cup of coffee in the, uh, the, the, the parlor before the chairman comes out to testify. What would you suggest to the chairman would be GDP 12 months forward? Well, I mean, I, I guess I don't want to go too far from what the Federal Open Market Committee is saying themselves. I mean, okay. they have a number that's, what do they have, 2.2% yeah. this year. Yeah. I'm pretty much close to that. Then 2% next year. Yeah, I think it, I mean, that's the FOMC, 2% yeah. next year in 2020. I wouldn't go too far from that. I think the idea that we're going to slow to the stall speed of 1% <clears> where yeah. bad things can happen, like we can flip over and go into the ditch of right, recession, right, right. that's not, we're not going to see the 1% Why not? number. Why are we not going to see the gloom that's out there? Well, I, I think it's really got to be the, it's got to be trade. You know, it's got to be the stock market going down, yeah. thinking the trade agreement is on, on track. <clears throat> and also, I was thinking that the hit to GDP would be almost a percentage point if all the tariffs on 500 billion roughly of China imported goods go to 30%. But we're not there yet. You know, we're just at 15% right, right. for the September goods and who knows what's going to happen yeah. at, at uh, December 15th. So Chris, we're not there yet. Thank you so much. Chris Repke, thank you so much. MUFG, greatly appreciate the quick analysis. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.